Okay, why don't we go on to your next patient? Next patient is a 68-year-old gentleman who began to feel poorly in the summer of 2008. He had thought that this was mostly stress. He was preparing for his son's wedding. Unfortunately, he developed a worsening cough. He followed up with his primary care doctor, who then ordered a chest X-ray, which appeared suspicious, and then a CAT scan, which was done in early January of 2009. This showed complete opacification of the apical and posterior segments of the right upper lobe, and he subsequently was referred for further evaluation to a pulmonologist. The CAT scan showed rather significant bilateral pleural effusions, and he underwent a fine needle aspiration in the end of January of 2009. This was positive for a lung malignancy, and it appeared to be squamous cell carcinoma. He was referred to me for further evaluation. When I initially saw the patient, he was profoundly short of breath. He had quit smoking approximately 10 years ago, and had been a a three-pack-a-day smoker for approximately 20 years. In the previous two months before seeing me, he had lost approximately 25 pounds. On my first evaluation of him, I was very struck by his shortness of breath. The gentleman couldn't walk from the exam table to his chair without huffing and puffing. Initially, my first evaluation included sending him back to his pulmonologist. I asked that he perform a pleurocentesis and remove the pleural fluid to hopefully improve his breathing. He had about a liter and a half of fluid removed and came to see me in follow-up approximately a week later. At this point, we went over his imaging study, which included a PET scan. The PET scan showed a very large right apical lung mass, which measured 10.5 by 5.8 by 7.9. There was a moderate persistent right-sided pleural effusion and several hypermetabolic right hyalur as well as posterior mediastinal lymph nodes noted on the PET scan. I received also at that time the cytology of the fluid withdrawn from his pleural tap, which did not yield any malignant cells in it. The patient was feeling less short of breath at that time, and we discussed options that were available. I told him my feeling was that despite the fluid not having any significant neoplasm in it, the fact that the tumor was so large, it had obstructed distal lung, and that the fluid was present in the first place, he did not appear to be an operative candidate. Additionally, I did not think that he could tolerate concurrent therapy because he continued to be short of breath, had an underlying cardiac history, and we discussed the options included in systemic chemotherapy. We started him on chemotherapy, which consisted of carboplatin, taxol, and herbitox on March 17th. He came for follow-up today after receiving his third cycle. How's he doing? He's doing well. Very striking of what I saw in him approximately three weeks ago was the degree of his herbitox rash. It was very profound. At the time, I put him on some cleosin as well as gave him a Medrol dose pack because it looked poor and he actually felt poorly with it. He had some rash in his mouth. He was unable to eat. And from that, I actually decreased his Herbitux to 175 per meter squared instead of 250. His rash was much better today. He still has a grade 2 rash, but there were no real significant pustules and it didn't extend outside the malar portion of his face. 
So let me ask you, Jeff, have you treated many or any other patients with cetuximab with lung cancer? This was my first one. Hmm. Did you get a IHC test or any test on the tissue? I have ordered it, but it hasn't come back to me yet. Ed, what are your thoughts about this case and what's going on here? Well, this is a rare breed now that's becoming in lung cancer. And, you know, this is the squamous cell cancer. And, you know, not only is the squamous population shrinking, the drugs to treat squamous are also shrinking as well. I think we're finally starting to pay attention to histology a little bit, not just from safety, but also from effectiveness. And I can tell you from my personal experience, it's tougher to treat these squamous cell patients. So in this gentleman that Jeff presents, He's a stage 3B. He's got a pleural effusion. It's not malignant from what they could find. It's a pretty large primary tumor, and it is causing a little bit of obstruction, but he was asymptomatic. There was no sign of pneumonia at the time. And so this is a patient you kind of want to hold out hope for that you can do something definitive, meaning that you're going to make one big assumption that the effusion has not got any cancer cells in it. And you know, maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. We could tap the guy a hundred times and not find it. Number two is, is that it's a pretty large tumor. So when you try to radiate large tumors like this, I tell people it's like putting a frozen roast beef in the microwave. You know, it's going to get burnt on the outside and it's going to be a block of ice on the inside. The gentleman also was in very poor health. He could not walk. He was very short-winded and What we saw today was he has definitely improved clinically. He's up and walking. He feels better. He says he feels better. And so the goal of treatment in a patient like this is to see if you can get him to something definitive, assuming, again, that he doesn't have distant disease. And so I think what you want to try and do is optimize a response. And we do know that the addition of cetuximab to chemotherapy definitely improves responses. We know in the subset of the studies that have been shown that it does improve survival in squamous cells. And so I think it's a reasonable choice to put these three drugs together in this particular patient. Jeff, do you have any sense what his functional state was before the cancer came on the scene and how much of this is tumor-related? I think the vast majority of this was tumor-related. Prior to this, he was actually in excellent state of health. He was retired, but he was active every day. He participated in planning his son's wedding, and he had an ECOG of zero. That obviously changed dramatically when his cancer worsened prior to starting therapy. But what I saw today in him was actually a different person than what I had seen previously. He freely ambulated up and down the hall, was not short of breath. He had a couple minor complaints, and just in terms of some tolerance of his therapy that we talked about. Actually, the biggest one had to do with receiving growth factors and the subsequent bone pain that he suffered from white cell growth factors, which we talked about today. Ed, when you talk about, quote, moving towards something definitive, what are you thinking? Well, I think when you first see this gentleman who is a PS2+, you're thinking right now he can go in either direction. You worry that giving him chemotherapy can tip him over the edge because of tolerance, and you worry that his effusion and his breathing status will make him a poor candidate for any therapy. And some people would just pack it in and want to give something like a limpta to this patient. But as you know, right now, per the label, we can't do that. He's a squamous cell. 
So some would opt for single agent erlotinib. Well, this is a smoker who's got a squamous. So we know single agent anything is not going to work well in this gentleman. He had lost 25 pounds leading up to when Jeff saw him. And so this is significant weight loss. And I think we know that cetuximab is more tolerable than Avastin when you combine it with chemotherapy as far as the other neutropenic side effects and other side effects that are added. You can see that from the clinical trials. As far as the rash, that was one of the aspects he did have difficulty with. And I think this is a clear case where some interventions such as a thoracentesis and giving the patient chemotherapy to try to control his disease have resulted in him now gaining five pounds since he's begun treatment. So again, when you say definitive treatment, are you talking about surgery, radiation? What are you thinking? Right. So I think if there's a chance to shrink this tumor down, then I think you can always keep surgery in the back of your mind. But I'm hesitant with that because of his overall functional status, although improving. The effusion makes me very suspicious. But even if we decide radiation can be tolerated, shrinking the tumor down and giving radiation, whether it's 45 or 60 gray, depending on what the patient can tolerate, this is someone, if you believed had disease under control with several rounds of chemotherapy that you could consider going in a more definitive approach with combined modality therapy with radiation and chemotherapy. Now, what about the issue of cetuximab and radiation therapy? You have reported on that. And of course, we have the experience in head and neck cancer. Yeah, I think it's by far the leading candidate as far as a biologic agent to get approved and show benefit with chemotherapy combined with radiation. It works wonderfully as a radiosensitizer. We see the data in head and neck. This is a drug that potentially could have replaced cisplatin in certain tumor subsites in head and neck cancer. And so the RTOG is running the studies based on phase twos that were reported by George Blumenshine and others that perhaps we can begin to think about adding this drug. I think at this time, it really is a little bit difficult to add it to radiation just because we don't have the phase three data saying that's correct. But it will be a very good step forward for lung cancer and the treatment of locally advanced therapy. Now, on the flip side, I think the chemotherapy that is probably leading the pack, of course, in non-squamous is Olympta in that same regard. Jeff, I know you've treated a lot of people with cetuximab, I guess probably mainly colon cancer. You know, the data, I don't, I'm curious what you thought about the FLEX trial that was presented at ASCO last year showing that benefit adding cetuximab to chemotherapy, but it looked, you know, like a pretty borderline modest benefit. You think it's worth it? And particularly if this is going to be most likely a palliative situation, the man has already had a lot of problems with the cetuximab. Jeff, do you think it's kind of worth it to him? I actually do. I'll tell you, if you saw the patient and saw his clinical improvement over the last two and a half months, it's dramatic. And I have to attribute some aspect of that to combining the therapy with the biologic. So I have to think it's worth it. He looked great today compared to how he looked two and a half months ago. Of course, some or a lot of that could be from the chemotherapy also. Most certainly could, but after reading the data from ASCO and saw the significant improvement in response rate by adding the cetuximab, I felt pretty confident that it certainly has something to do with it. 
And I know you mentioned in your case write-up that a repeat PET-CT showed complete resolution of the hilar lymph nodes and about a 70% decrease in the size of the primary tumor, so at least the partial objective tumor response already. Ed, any impressions about this patient as a person in your chat with him today? He's a nice guy. He is a Yankees fan, so I won't hold that against him. But uh, (laughs) he's a nice gentleman. He was very succinct and straightforward as far as how he was feeling before. And he did emphasize how much better he's feeling now. He's got a family behind him that is pushing him. There was a son and a daughter, I believe, who was here today. And they do say, well, you know, he sometimes does tend to sit around at home. But he does go to the store. He stated how he went driving around. That's the first time he's done that in a while. So he's got a nice support system. He's got a large family that I could see impression-wise that everybody's trying to search the internet and find something for him and hopefully do that. A large part of the conversation today, and Jeff, you know, even though he's out here in private practice, and I don't know if it was just me today, he spent a lot of time with these patients today, talking with them and trying to allay their fears and calm them. You know, they were really fixated on surgery. And it's hard to tell someone that surgery is not going to be an option because many people feel you got to go in and take it out and that's the only way you get cured. And that's not the way we do it in lung cancer as opposed to other cancers. How involved was the patient and the family, Jeff, in terms of getting information? Did they go out there and find out about the FLEX study and cetuximab and all that, or they pretty much turned it back to you? They've been very trusting since day one. I did go over a lot of the data with them up front. The son has been very active in just kind of rechecking the data that I give him. We also spent a fair amount of time today discussing other things that he can do to become more active. One bone I had to pick with him was him not going to pulmonary rehab, which I tend to send a lot of lung cancer patients to. And I've seen a real tremendous benefit from actually getting them up and out to a facility that has the ability to improve their lung function. So that's one promise he made to me.